I said good day, sir. You don't ever plan anything around the eagles because the eagles represent the grace of God. Okay. You heathen bastards. What a vanilla nebbish name. Well, you know, orcs are people too. I'm thinking of that one cult that got taken out with one punch. So he's got a wall, okay. a gall, a gall, and a wall. Every time you mention the eagles, I think Don Henley. <laughs> This is a Geek History of Time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history and English teacher here in Northern California. And in my capacity as an English teacher, I have uh, been um, teaching my sixth grade English students uh, the Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of the Speckled Band, um, which is a lot of fun. Uh, partly because I'm a Sherlock Holmes fan to begin with, um, especially after we had, uh, you know, done an episode talking about him. Um, and um, it, it occurs to me that uh, your point at the end of our last episode mm-hmm. was close to the mark but I, I think it can be expanded slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you mentioned how uh, anti-Semitism is an inescapable part of English art. Mm-hmm. And I think it can be broadened. I don't think it's just anti-Semitism. I think it's xenophobia. Makes sense generalized, for an island culture. Generalized xenophobia, because again, I'm teaching the adventure of the speckled band and uh, one of the things that makes the bad guy in that story uh, inherently suspicious to Holmes and Watson and the reader, remember mm-hmm. who was writing for a Victorian English audience, uh, was that uh, uh, Dr. Grimsby Roylott of Stoke Moran. That's a lot of names. Yes. Well, you know, uh, one of the, the last surviving heir of one of the oldest Saxon families remaining in England is uh, just about word for word the line from the story. Um, anyway, uh, Dr. Grimsby Roylott uh, is, is considered a sketchy ass motherfucker, uh, partly because he allows a group of Romani to camp on his land. Wow. And he will sometimes disappear with them for days at a time. And I'm using the term Romani. Right. Conan Doyle did not use the term <laughs> Romani. Yeah. Um, he, he used he used the G word. And um, like it's it's just it's it's just taken for granted that oh yeah no he consorts with those people must be They're, suspicious oh yeah no and there's multiple references to thieving slur you know and sure, and sure. you know when when a young woman when when the sister of the young woman who goes to Holmes for help you know tells the story of her sister's suspicious death you know, they immediately jump to, well, you know, she mentioned a speckled band. Could it be, you know, the spotted handkerchiefs they wear so often? It could have been, wow. one of them. you know, I mean, it was just like, and, and I, I actually had to take a moment or two in the process of, you know, teaching the story to the kids to say, okay, <laughs> understand 
these are negative racist stereotypes that are just <laughs> being blatantly thrown out there. Right. We don't we don't use this word anymore to talk about right. these people. Um, don't don't use this word to talk about these people because it is now it is a slur. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> and so so yeah, I don't I, I think I think that there is anti-Semitism, but I think the anti-Semitism is is part of a a larger strain of just xenophobia like there are other times in other stories written by englishmen where you know uh the irish who like they're literally just on the other side of a goddamn strait like mm-hmm. it's not even they're not even that foreign but apparently they were foreign enough to victorian englishmen uh to be demonized you know and described in these in these caricature-esque you know monstrous kind of ways it's like okay you you all really are an island culture and you really do have some serious serious phobias about anybody who ain't part of your tribe so yeah that's that's what i've been doing uh who are you and what have you been up to well i'm damien harmony i'm a latin teacher a drama teacher a soon-to-be history teacher up here in northern california Um, And I found a new cafe Uh, and I, you know, I, I always try to find a place just, I like, I like ambiance and and what have you. And uh, this place actually had a sign out front said, you better be wearing a mask when you come in here. It said something similar. I was like, okay, cool. This is, this is already good. Um, But it's called the there and back again cafe. And it's down on 11th street uh, and cathedral square. Okay. Which uh, I think you, you recognized it as being formerly a, a different comic place. Yeah. This currently, though, uh, the There and Back Cafe, their nice. mochas are good. Uh, their ambiance is fun. Um, okay. I have a video that I will show you after um, okay. because the floor is a map of, uh, of Tolkien's Hobbit world. Um, Middle Earth. Oh, that is Middle Earth. Shit. Yeah. I, isn't that also no? I was thinking Midgard. I always mix yeah. those up. It's kind of well, like my mixing up Heinlein and Herbert. Uh, kind so. of, and, but 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 it's yeah. a little bit more forgivable with with Middle Earth and Midgard because mm-hmm. Midgard is literally where the name Middle Earth came from. Right. Because right. again, Tolkien like looted the poetry and prose edits right. for everything he could. Well, they've got it on the floor when you down. walk in, so you can quite <clears> simply walk into Mordor. Nice. Yes. So, nice. yeah, I, I, I would be willing to go there even before you mentioned that. Yeah. It sounded like the kind of place I wanted to go to. And now mm-hmm. I need to go there literally just to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, hey, so, hey, 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 good place. hey, look. So hey, <laughs> Boromir, buddy. So, yeah, that's uh, yeah. that's I found that I, I encourage anybody who's in the local Sacramento area to go to that cafe give them your business they have nice good hand pies um their mochas are pretty good i loved the salads that i baked goods were yeah uh i love the salad my son enjoyed a cranberry scone um my daughter really enjoyed her drink it was a polyjuice potion okay um and uh, my son really enjoyed his lavender lemonade so it was it was right all good all around so i strongly recommend people check out there and back again cafe okay very cool yeah they even have a charcuterie board which is called a shire cuterie board um it's just adorable so it's 
it's it's good it's okay. good they're, they're building cool. it yeah all right yeah no i'm 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 already pumped like yeah. i'm ready to go now yeah so so cool. all right when all last right. we left um you yes, were when... you'd introduced the diaspora yes specifically um, well okay so there are many diaspora diaspora fair, fair. yeah uh because yeah. it's a greek word so it would be ae right um there there have been many diaspora uh, mm-hmm. throughout human history we we talk about the black diaspora we talk about the irish diaspora right um you know any any group of people migrating from a homeland to any number of other places is a right. diaspora right and <clears throat> the jewish diaspora is one of many okay and but that's the one you're going to focus on. this is the one i'm going to focus on okay. and and again before i delve into this uh i want once more like i did at the beginning of the last episode i want to give a very very heartfelt thank you uh to a friend of the show tessa for mm-hmm. uh acting as my uh sensitivity reader uh being as i'm i'm not, not only am i a gentile i'm a catholic and so anytime i'm going to talk about jewish anything i should make sure i'm you know i have my head on straight sure. i'm you know being being sensitive to issues uh and one of the things that that she did mention uh to me was that um the term diaspora especially when talking about the jewish diaspora has been used in ways that uh can sometimes be kind of a dog whistle mm. uh, because it can be uh, used in a way to try to characterize uh, Jewish people as invaders, as foreign, as not belonging in places where yeah. they've now lived for a thousand years. Right. You right. know, and so I want to like it right at the outset. I want to I want to make very, very clear that that, you know, I am I am specifically I'm, I'm looking at this pattern of migration in order to try to find out. Mm hmm whether there was a an element of anti-semitism in the archetype from its beginning or not and sure. i'm i'm not uh i'm not trying to characterize anybody as not belonging anywhere everybody belongs everywhere you know anywhere yeah. anywhere yeah. anybody wants to live they have a right to make that their home i just but you are talking specifically about the history of the movement of these people yes from one over time into yeah, from one others Right. Yes. Okay. And so, um, when we when we talk about the the spread of uh, Jewish populations uh, out of the Levant, out of the Middle East, into other parts of the world, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that comes up very quickly is the ethnic uh, divisions or the ethnic groups within Judaism. Okay. Um, and so the the first group and the group that as an American, if somebody says the word Jewish to you, mm-hmm. the the group that you are probably going to picture in your head yeah. are the Ashkenazim. Okay. And these are Jews who are descended from Jewish populations in Central and Eastern Europe, taking their name from the medieval Hebrew word for Germany. Okay. Ashkenaz. Yeah, this this is your uh, late eighteen hundreds, yeah, um, escaping many pogroms, uh, American immigration. Yes, correct. Yeah, the fifty percent stayed basically in New York. The other fifty percent uh, continued on, yeah, westward. Um, 
two varying yeah. degrees. Yeah. To to the rest of to the rest so, of the country. Yeah. yeah. Th- this explains why the American imagination is that it's Ashkenazim. Um, yeah. When when you say a uh, Jewish person, that's yeah. that's what you think of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now um, the next group uh, that that comes up that gets mentioned are the Sephardim or Sephardic Jews, mm-hmm. who are descended from populations in Spain, Portugal, and North Africa. Right. Okay, so they're... Hank Azaria, I believe, is I Sephardic. believe so, yes. Yes. And so they uh, are descended from groups who left uh, Judea mm-hmm. uh, and moved into Hispania. Right, stayed under... Mediterranean. Yeah, stayed, yeah. well, stayed, stayed Mediterranean and... Uh, remained uh, or or moved into that part of the world, which then, after after Roman uh, control of Iberia faltered, mm-hmm. uh, first it was Moors. It wasn't the Vandals. No, the oh man. Anyway, one a one one of the barbarian tribes responsible for the invasion of of Rome in the in the four seventies um, took control. And their uh, dynasty the faltered. Yes, it was the Visigoths. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Uh, Visigothic Spain. It, once so you were... gave me the date, I was like, oh, I know who you're talking about. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So. so we can, you know, we can tag team this stuff. Yeah. Um, so then, so then they, they lived in Visigothic Spain and then mm-hmm. they came under the rule of the Moors, as you mentioned. Right. Uh, and there was a real flowering of scholarship, uh, both religious and medical and scientific uh, within uh, Sephardic communities in mm-hmm. Iberia and North Africa uh, during what is what is often referred to as the Muslim Golden Age. Right. Uh, and I want to say that was the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, but there were there were a great many uh, Jewish scholars uh, active in in that part of uh, Europe. Uh, and a great many uh, rabbinic traditions that are now part of uh, Jewish culture more broadly uh, date back to uh, developments within that population in that part of the world. Mm-hmm. And then the third broad group are the Mizrahim or Easterners. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about this term is this, this can be very broadly applied uh, or very narrowly applied. It can be taken to mean any non-European Jews, which sometimes has meant Jewish populations who never left the Middle East. Sure. East. It's also been applied to uh, Yemeni Jews or uh, Jewish populations in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and the term has actually been used by the Israeli government um, to refer to groups that were targeted by immigration plans in the same way that U.S. immigration laws were designed to keep many populations out of this country. So the the definition of Mizrahim is is one that I'm not really qualified as a as a Gentile to go into very much more. You know, talking about the shades of meaning of that. Sure. Uh, it's broadly who the third group is. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and. So that that now brings us to the Roman Empire, because I mentioned Germany, mm-hmm. Germania, I mentioned Hispania. Right. And I know we're, we're going to get back to fantasy literature and to Warhammer 40K eventually, I, I promise. But to get there, we've got to start here. 
Um, so Pompey conquered Jerusalem in 63 BCE. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, over the following century, there were multiple conquests and revolts within what became the province of Judea. Mm-hmm. And those conquests of different parts of the territory and those revolts by different populations led to tens of thousands of Jews being carried out of Judea and into the rest of the Roman Empire, either being just like deported, like you're a troublemaker, GTFO. Right. Or they were defeated by the Romans, which frequently meant, hey, by the way, you're our property now. Right. You know, welcome to slavery. And and so we know that there was a community of manumitted Jewish slaves on the right bank of the Tiber in, in Rome mm-hmm. uh, within the first century CE. Yes. Um, after the first Jewish-Roman War in 66 CE, which was a huge revolt, mm-hmm. uh, which actually led to the construction of the Colosseum, because the first Jewish-Roman War is the destruction of the Second Temple, right? and the funds from the looting of the Second Temple were used to pay for the construction of the Colosseum, um, it is also frequently it's it's kind of taken for granted we don't really have any hard documentary evidence but it's taken for granted that the romans probably would have also used captured jewish slaves to build the structure yeah because that was the kind of thing they did if you know if biftanen was an empire like you know yes because yes. they were assholes like that like yeah. oh yeah so yeah now now not only did you watch us loot your most holy site in the world but now we're going to make you build this thing and a big part of this thing is going to be uh, boss reliefs carvings showing us looting your most holy site. Right. Because, you know, you fucked with us. So now this is what you got to get. Like, right. Because the Romans were like that. Um, and so tens of thousands more Jews were forcibly deported from Jerusalem in the wake of that rebellion. And these refugees became the founders of what we now call the Sephardim and Ashkenazim communities Mm -hmm. elsewhere within the empire. Now, I assume that these are the three largest groups or the three most uh, known groups in history and that there's other groups as well. There are there are subgroups. Okay, these are kind of these are kind of like if 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 you want to use a taxonomic kind of definition, these Mm -hmm. would be like families. Okay. And then you'd have genie and then species beneath right, that. Right. Like you'd, you'd start with a very broad groups right. and then kind of get more, you'd, you'd narrow down to more specific kind of, kind of definitions. Okay. Um, so, because I mean, there are significant differences, for instance, with, within the Ashkenazi group, there are significant differences between, you know, French Jewish traditions and Russian Jewish traditions, but they're both Ashkenazim. Sure. Yeah. But you're but talking they're, they're nationality groups. Cons- yeah. 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 Okay. Um, uh, the only reason I ask is because um, I'm remembering the story of Noah's children, and there were three of them Jem, Japheth, and, uh, or no, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Yeah. And they went in three different directions. And, you know, you've got you've got that. And then I also remember like the three main non Hercules myths of Greece uh, tend to be Odysseus, the the three main travely ones, Odysseus, Jason and Perseus. And again, they go in three different directions. Yeah. And it's essentially the same three directions both times. Yeah. 
I and, think and it's all kind of originating from that eastern Mediterranean area, which yeah. would make sense that those would be the three same three directions each time. But it is yeah. kind of interesting it's that little, you still it's, it's it's an interesting parallel. I'm yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with because of the way the timelines work on all of that. I'm gonna say that we're getting into another kind of you know Mediterranean or psyche archetype kind of thing. It makes sense. Also, trade winds are a thing, but yeah, 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 yeah. just as if, yeah, <laughs> you know, like as a purely practical thing, getting and, all the, and, and, getting all the Jungian woo woo out of the way. Yeah, yeah and, you know, and you know, also that Parthians, you know, followed those trade winds and set up places. So you're going to end yeah. up going to where there's places. So yeah, okay, okay. So carry on. So and and this is where I want to take a quick side note to point mm-hmm. out the obvious. Sure. Wherever Jewish enclaves sprung up, Jews became important participants in the larger community. Mm-hmm. Okay everywhere they went they became right. an important part of the larger community to the extent that jews remained separated from the people around them a great deal of that was inflicted on them by their neighbors right okay you're different you're weird you're not the same religion as us we're afraid god is not going to like us if we're too nice to you so you're in stay this over quarter. there yeah right you know um, and the contributions of Jewish artists, poets, writers, scholars, craftspeople, and doctors to the cultural legacy of Europe and the world mm-hmm. are worthy of their own study and have made all of humanity far richer than we would be without them. Okay. Okay. Before I get into anything else, I want to make that really clear. People belong wherever the fuck they want to belong. Right. Okay. And people's like, success is often despite yes. uh, their their ostracization. Yeah. And and the stereotype and, and I also this this one just bugs the shit out of me. So 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 I've, I've got to I've got to pick this one out separately. Sure. I know where you're going <sighs> the, here too. The the because uh, because this bug I, I I don't know how much I ranted about it with Henry Ford, but it just it bugs the shit out of me. The, the stereotype of, um, you know, Jews being in control of the financial system or, or Jews having all the money. The reason for that is that in early medieval Europe, where Ashkenazim communities got founded and, you know, where they settled and where they, they set themselves up, mm-hmm. their Christian neighbors were forbidden by the church from engaging in financial speculation or the loaning of money at interest. Right. Now, this is an important service. You need to be able to borrow money. Like, and if you want to have a sophisticated enough economy, at some point, you need to right. have somebody who's lending money. And if you're going to incentivize lending money, you have to allow people to charge interest. Otherwise, yes. why would I let go of my money? Now I can't yeah. spend it. Yeah. Yes. So. Right. So... So the reason that arose is because they were pushed into that job because it's their a... neighbors wouldn't do it. And then their neighbors got jealous about the fact that they were making money off of it. Right. And that they were successful at it. Right. And so that then got weaponized against them. Yeah. Like, no, assholes. You pushed them into this job. The least you can do is look at them and go, all right, you did well for yourselves. Awesome. Yeah. Go you. Also, what kind of stupid, like, the the reason you don't charge interest, I think, goes back to God. And so you're, you want to obey God and treat everybody like brothers. Yeah. 
And so your solution is God won't see this work around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it's, I'm not, no, I'm not the one doing it. So, so it's, so it's in, in, in a way, it's not so much God isn't going to see it. It's I'm going to make these people a scapegoat. And God won't see that part. Yeah, well, yeah. That's the thing. It, it's, it's, the it's part of the calculus is just like that, that doesn't get taken into account. It's like, it's not that God doesn't see it. It's like, well, you know, I'm just working a system. Like, I, did hey you, man, did you, yeah. did you actually read what Jesus had to say? Like about working the, the, the one person he attacked violently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the one, <laughs> the one time he actually flipped his shit and all the tables. Yeah. Was like now this you know, specific we can, we can, thing that this, you are this, now this. going like, no, 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 no. I wasn't touching base. He was touching base. Yeah. So I'm okay. Because I technically, and it's it's that whole like, yeah. it, it's it's that really fun parsimonious nature that just absolutely, legalism. yeah, and and it's, it's just rank legalism. And it's well, like, no, it's it's worse than legalism because legalism I actually think has a place when you are trying to, and again, atheist here, anti-theist here, when you are trying to divine what God meant. I think parsing the shit out of a language, out of his commandments and all this kind of stuff absolutely works. Legalism, thou shalt not murder. Is murder mean intentional killing? Does it murder mean, uh, you know, just regular, are we talking manslaughter? Warfare. Like, what are we, what are we talking about here? That's important. I think that that's a valid thing. Um, Now I'm also kind of a black and white guy. So it's like, yo, if it's, (laughs) if it's warfare, that's just state sponsored murder. So fucking stop that too. But whatever. Okay, cool. You know, Um, using legalism to like basically make God re-roll his D20. (laughs) Try to put God at disadvantage. Right. Like like the the fucking cheekiness that it takes. Like it's, I have more respect for people who are like, well, we did anal. So technically I'm still a virgin. I have more respect for that <laughs> because at least they're trying something new, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. There's at least some, some, there's some creativity there. Yeah. You know, there. and, yeah. and they're going to enjoy some of it. Like they will find a way it'll be. And if, well, if they're not, yeah, some, yeah. well, they should both. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it's, it's <clears throat> that kind of like, this means I still get into heaven though yeah like it's that weird kind of like i don't like the guy but bill maher had this great thing about how like people are doing the purity ball thing uh and the the people who designed the purity ball thing never thought of butt sex and therefore that's the way around it so to stay morally pure you could do butt stuff because then you keep like i mean it, it was that kind of fucked up logic and he was pointing it out, and what? and of course he's pointing it out in in a very boomer like yeah, well yeah, of course yeah, kind of way yeah, because it's Bill Maher. But it was helpful yeah. for that particular story, like yeah. it, But it's that hypocrisy that that rank like as yeah. soon as you point it out to someone, and they're like, you could see it in their eyes that they know they're full of shit. Oh yeah, and then they, they double and out. triple down anyway. Yeah, yeah, and it just yeah. like oh, it drives me nuts. Drives oh, yeah. me nuts. Yeah. So okay, they they tricked God um by yeah. getting uh yeah. by getting others to do 
to do the uh, sinful thing. Right. For them. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And, and so with, with that important rant out of the way, mm-hmm. you kind of getting back to the timeline. Now the sure, earliest sure. documented presence, and we're going to focus, we're going to focus here on, on the Ashkenazim as a, okay. as a, as a primary population, because if there's any group of people who were most likely to have come into contact with the people who wrote the prose Edda sure. or the ancestors of people who wrote the prose Edda, it would be Ashkenazim because that's yep, part of yep. Europe we're talking about. Right. So the earliest documented presence of Jews in central Europe dates to the second century CE. Mm-hmm. And this is in what was the Roman province of Pannonia. Okay. Uh, which you immediately recognize what that means. But for mm-hmm. anybody who's you know not a scholar of ancient Roman geography, uh, we're talking about Western Russia, uh, modern day Ukraine, uh, uh, and the it's... peninsula, the the the, the no, Balkan. not the Balkan, yeah, well, Balkans Baltic. and oh, um, Crimea. Oh, okay. Uh, Crimean Peninsula and uh, into Hungary, modern day Hungary. And so we have epigraphic evidence from grave sites, which again, for anybody who's not a history nerd like the two of us, epigraphic evidence means literally tombstones, epigraphs. Right. Yeah. Carved Uh, into a tombstone or carved into a stone. Yeah. Yeah. So documentation. uh, So we, we have names on tombstones that indicate there, there were Jews here because we can look at the names and we can recognize that mm-hmm. culturally. Now, documentation from that time period suggests that these groups arrived as uh, populations that were either part of or were traveling with uh, Syrian troops in the Roman army. And the documentary sources indicate that for anybody who wasn't part of their population it was actually really difficult to differ, differentiate them the the jewish people culturally or linguistically from the syrians that they were traveling with okay um, we do know that they archaeological evidence indicates that there were uh, small kind of enclave communities of specifically jewish folks mm-hmm. um and uh again they were either troops within the imperial legions or they were uh, some kind of support population auxiliaries or, that auxiliaries kind of thing. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the Romans handed Pannonia off to the Huns in 433. Right. And there's no evidence of a Jewish community remaining after the Roman withdrawal. Okay. So, so late empire, the Romans are like, okay, look, we, we, we can't defend all this territory. You guys, here you go. It's yours. Right. We're you leaving. Want it. Yeah. You want it, you got it. It's your problem now. And um, those Jewish populations left mm-hmm. with the Romans as as part of right. that Roman kind of over Roman diaspora. Yeah, it's and really it's so, emigration. It's not diaspora because yeah. they're they're in many ways they're leaving their province and going back to a homeland. Yeah. So. Yeah, and so now it's a repatriation, point, I guess. Kind of. Yeah. At this point in the conversation, Mm -hmm. uh, this, this was something that that grabbed my attention and, and I was like, Oh, Hey, wait a minute. There were a couple of scholars in the 1970s into the 1980s who, who put forward a theory that the Ashkenazim 
uh, were more likely descended, this is their theory was, they were more likely descended from Khazars or Khazars than Judean or Middle Eastern Jews. They pointed to the conversion of the Khazar Khans somewhere mm-hmm. between the 740s and 920s CE. And these As, were blonde-haired, really buffed guys that could talk to saber-toothed tigers in nice. Antarctica. Nice. Thank no. You. No? Oh. These, this, this was a Turkic group oh. uh, who controlled... <laughs> they controlled the territory. The story of their conversion is kind of interesting. They, they controlled the territory where they had Christians on one side of them and they had Muslims on the other side of them. And it was kind of their version of uh, Sadat's, I'm, I'm going to like find a third way. Mm-hmm. was like okay well um <laughs> these two groups like want to kill each other so you know and and they had they had contact with jewish traders and and there was there there was you know some some subpopulations that were there and so the the cons converted to judaism okay sometime during that period and and there's coin evidence uh that involves hebrew script and there's a whole sure, sure. there's there's a whole big, huge debate about like, was their conversion genuine? How much, how many of the people actually converted? Like there's this whole big thing. Right. But there, there were these scholars who said, you know, um, it makes more sense, you know, looking at the, looking at the distances involved in the geography and timelines and whatever they said, it makes more, it, it, it seems to make more sense that Ashkenazim would be descended from the Khazars rather than mm-hmm. Middle Eastern Jewish populations. And um, this theory has been disproven by modern genetic studies uh, because looking at, you know, surviving, uh, you know, descendants of the Khazars, looking at surviving Ashkenazi Jewish people and looking at Middle Eastern Jews, studies of their genome Mm -hmm. have shown that modern Ashkenazim populations have a lot more in common with Middle Eastern Jews than they do with Khazars. Okay. So that theory essentially got disproven by modern technology. And now that I've brought that up, I I feel like it's important given the state of the world Mm -hmm. that I pause and point out something else that should be obvious. Genetics are not destiny. Genetics aren't even necessarily tied to identity. There is no such thing as superior or inferior genes. And even if Ashkenazim had been proven to be descended from the Khazars, they'd be no less Jewish than anybody else. Now, I'm going to push back a bit. I do think that there are some genes that are superior to others. For instance, Levi's way better than Wranglers. Wranglers infinitely better than Jordash. And guests can just fuck all the way off. Okay, I will agree with everything after your first point. Okay. But that first point, I will fight you. Okay, I'm, we have I'm, the great I'm, denim schism here. Yeah, pretty uh, much. Yeah. So, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. You godless heathen. Um <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> you godful yeah. heathen. I don't yeah, know well, what you hey, want. Hey, <laughs> hey, 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 hey. I became a Catholic. I'm not a heathen anymore. Sure. Um and so so the whole debate essentially was fueled by identity politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's a whole debate related to it within, within scholarship and, and I'm a Gentile and as such, I'm not qualified to get into any of it, but the debate is a fascinating one to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm totally unqualified to weigh in. It's totally not 
totally not my my thing to comment on. Sure. So we know that there were Jewish communities in Gaul mm-hmm. by 465 CE in Brittany and 533 in Orléans. Okay. The earliest we know of Jewish communities north of the Alps mm-hmm. is in the 8th and 9th centuries. Wait, Brittany is north of the Alps. Well, I'm okay. Directly north of the Alps, Brittany, oh, okay. Brittany is over in France. When when oh, I say okay. north of the Alps, I'm talking about in Germany, yeah. in modern day Austria. Yeah. Okay, that directly to the north of the directly Alps. Directly to the north right. of the Alps. Okay, straight shot north. Okay, um, it's kind of like that distinction of like uh, you've seen that meme of. Do you mean to tell me that Caesar, who's been dead for more than seventy years, is the reason why we have this salad? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. You're not wrong. You're not wrong, but you're so God wrong. Damn it, yeah. you're so wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, totally. Okay. So it's, north yeah, north so of the so Alps. Directly, you mean directly north of the Alps. Yeah. Yeah. So so Germany, uh modern day Germany, modern day Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the earliest we know of them being there is in the eighth and ninth centuries. Okay. And this migration was at least partially made possible by Big Chuck and his reign over the Holy Roman Empire. Okay. Big Chuck, of course, being Charlemagne. Right. Because Big Chuck. Um, and I always have to say this, the Holy Roman Empire, asterisk, it was neither holy nor Roman, nor really an empire. Mm-hmm. But moving on. Um, and the earliest record we have of Jewish settlement in Scandinavia, remember we're talking about the po- the poetic and prose Eddas. Right. The earliest record we have of Jewish settlement in Scandinavia dates to the 16th century. So well after Christianity has destroyed the the, the yes. native culture of that area. Yeah. yeah. Which brings me back around to the Eddas, mm-hmm. the earliest written record we have of the dwarf as a mythic archetype. That is not a reference to Jews. Yeah. As, as far as we can tell, the poetic and prose Eddas right. were first written down in the 13th century by Stor- Snorri Sturluson in Iceland. Right. All of the stories in both of those collections are based on a much, much, much older oral tradition. As we would recognize it, Norse paganism uh, likely dates to the 4th or 5th centuries based sure. on what archaeological evidence that we found. And so based on all of this evidence, it seems pretty clear that the mythological creatures that were the folkloric ancestors of modern dwarfs were dreamed up by people who couldn't be anti-Semitic because they never met Jewish people. Right. That's okay. okay. Yeah, I'm fully convinced on that. That being said. Which I I have in my notes, pause for deep breath. Yeah. Which brings us back around to Tolkien and thence to Dungeons and Dragons. So now I, I... didn't have i don't i don't really have this in my notes but i I think uh Mm -hmm. it's it's then worth noting that so this archetype existed prior to the arrival of any jewish people in in these parts of europe i was gonna say you still have your proletariat archetype you still have this this proletarian kind of archetype and then which by the way is not an urban archetype at that point no, it's oh really no. not. It's a liminal archetype. Like you yeah. said, they stand at doorways. They stand at portals to other realms and things yeah. like that. Yeah, that is decidedly not urban. No, um, which I think very because most anti-Semitism is tied into an anti-urban thing as well. 
Oh yeah, there's there's definitely yeah. a strand of anti-Semitism for yeah. sure. Because the, the um, anti-Semitism that you that you see is never like oh with all their ranching. Yeah, or <laughs> or you know living living as they did you know back in Russia in their peasant farming communities like. Well, see, pogroms not... would absolutely roast through there. Like that, oh, yeah, that no, was they, a thing. Well, they, yeah. they they totally would, but yeah. the the deal there was they have farmland we want the farmland so we're going to kill them all and take right, it right you know it wasn't the the everybody was a peasant <laughs> right so so part of why they were being targeted for hate wasn't that they were peasants like part right. of the reason that that you know anti-semites you know target jews for for hatred is because of the idea that they're connected to this urban system that is the subject of this distrust right you know, and and like that didn't exist. Like that that couldn't be a thing for a thousand years after mm-hmm. you know after the after the birth of this archetype because sure. none of these people lived in cities, right? Right, right. Like you know, um, it's it's not until you know the 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 late Viking Age that we really start seeing large scale cities that we'd recognize as urban centers anywhere in the Scandinavian world. But mm-hmm. anyway. So the, the thing is, so we, we have the roots of this archetype all the way back in, in the fourth and fifth centuries with, with the beginning of Norse paganism mm-hmm. and all of the folklore that goes along with it. And then sometime in the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages or later Middle Ages, depending on what part of Europe you're talking about, sure, we have the... Ashkenazim showing up, arriving, mm-hmm. looking for opportunities, looking for trying to get away from this other group who was persecuting them where they came from, moving to a new place. Right. And sadly, finding they were going to get persecuted there too, because, <laughs> you know, people are shitty everywhere. Yep. Um, but they show up and we have this archetype floating in the back of everybody's head who already lives there and then these folks show up and as a as a culture they value education they value craftsmanship they stick together of they stick together because because you gotta yeah like, exactly you know how right. like <laughs> when it's like you can only be over there it's like well i guess i know who my neighbors are yeah and I also guess, yeah this is the only way I can be safe in this community. They've already yeah. pushed me to the margin. So, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and they uh, have this uh, very powerful, uh, they, they attach a lot of uh, value to education and learning and the opportunity to get education and to, and to learn. They're a very highly literate group of people. And so that leads to, resentment from right. from their their neighbors because like well you know look at you all highfalutin and smart mm-hmm. and so there was this set of tropes that then got attached to them that already existed from this non-human group in folklore mm-hmm. you see what i'm saying yeah, I mean, I, I was going to bring this up earlier. I think you called the word uh, accretion or syncretion, syncretism. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I just I think about uh, the Buddha, Ooh. the asceticism and all that until yeah. you get to Chinese Buddha. 
then he's a fat guy. Yeah. And and yeah. it's because he was over time, because of the goodness of him, he was also attached to a character that had to do with good fortune and good luck and mm-hmm. joy. Prosperity. Exactly. And yeah. and those things molded and became that thing. And so yeah. I think I think that this is this is kind of what happened. Like clearly yeah. uh the the magic that dwarves were was the magic that dwarves were. Mm-hmm. But over time, there's that group of people over there. Hey, didn't the dwarves have beards? Don't those people have beards? Mm, I bet they also do this and that and this and that and this and that. And pretty soon, yep. rumor becomes fact. Pretty much, yeah. And so, and so we then see because, like, I brought up the Nibelunga lead and Wagner, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so by the time the Nibelunga lead was being written down by by German folklorists. Mm-hmm. And by the time Wagner started writing his opera, well, yeah, all of right. those anti-Semitic things are in full effect by that time. Right. Because they've had all that time to, to coalesce mm-hmm. in that way. Yeah. And in that place too. And, and in that, and in that place. Right. Um, and so that that then brings us back to Tolkien, who may or may not have been like trying to respond to like Wagner or may have. I don't know. I don't know what we can't know what was going on in his head, but he, he wrote what he wrote and he tried to do better by it as he went on. Sure. And then that brings us for the purposes of this study of the archetype uh, to D&D. Dungeons and okay. Dragons and AD&D. And so the races that were presented in original D&D and then in AD&D were clearly derived like straight from Tolkien. Yeah, to the point where the, I wasn't there a cease and desist? Um there there was uh and then they made one very important change. Uh right. they renamed Hobbit's Halflings. Yeah. And and that got the Paul Zayant's company and the Tolkien estate off their backs. Right. Um, and Gygax and company used the plural dwarves mm-hmm. out of Tolkien's writing rather than actually fixing his grammar and using what he even he admitted was more correct, which would be dwarfs. Hmm. Uh, the plural dwarves with a V-E-S. Uh, there's, there's actually... Um, there's there's actually been a lot of ink spilled on that because uh tolkien admitted later on that Mm -hmm. it sounded better to him but he recognized that grammatically because of the way english works it was actually wrong but he saw that it got picked up and lots of other people started using it as the plural and it actually made him really happy because he saw it as kind of his thumbprint being left on the english language sure that there was this irregular plural uh, kind of in the same way that the plural of goose is geese, which is, I don't see those is irregular. I mean, goose comes from a Germanic word and the O goes to E in, in, in plural conventions. Scarves is the plural of scarf. Yeah. So, but, but the, 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 if, if you are a, I'm trying to think not a not a not a use defined but a these are the rules right if, if you're a linguist of the stripe that is like no no this is the way it's supposed to work right instead you're of breaking the, the rules rule, right 
um, then then it's incorrect. But right. it, but it's become the more common commonly used mm-hmm. uh, plural. So anyway, it's like our uh, pron- pronunciation of comfortable. Yes. Yeah. Instead yeah. of comfortable. Yes. Yeah. So Gygax and Arneson and the rest of them mm-hmm. used dwarves. Sure. Which is taken straight out of, out of Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And um, as described in the player's handbook and the first monster manual, mm-hmm. dwarves are hardy, taciturn, miners, and craftspeople. Okay. They love the earth and the treasures that can be found within it. Mm-hmm. They can lean toward greediness and are suspicious of outsiders. <laughs> okay. They have a general antipathy for elves, which is mm-hmm. stolen whole cloth from Tolkien again, sure. and a burning hatred of orcs. We already covered orcs and talking right, about all right. their baggage in another episode. That's a whole other kettle of fish. Now, at this point, an interesting addition to the lore that that wasn't part of Tolkien, um, at least not like strictly codified as such, uh, is that dwarves live in clans that are loosely related to each other mm-hmm. and they ally with each other and have feuds with one another and grudges <laughs> that they hold. Sure. Um, and the dwarf default alignment in the monster manual is lawful good. Mm-hmm. Later, you made a pun about this last episode, the Durgar or gray dwarves uh-huh. were lawful evil. Yeah, they're they, the under they're the underground version of dwarves, which is funny because dwarves already. Yeah, they're the they're the deep, deep, deep under dark, yeah. way down, you know, near the base of the crust of the planet dwarves. Right. And then even deeper than them are the Darrow, uh, who were introduced at the same time as the Durgar in the Monster Manual too. Uh, they were chaotic evil. The Durgar okay. are lawful evil. Um, but what's interesting is the Darrow are actually lifted from a completely different source and they're more eldritch horror oh, okay. adjacent than they are tied to any kind of classical folklore. Okay. Um, they're they're and, and I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find it. I know that their source, uh, the, the, the name uh, originally came from and essentially it wasn't written by Lovecraft but it's a somewhat Lovecraftian adjacent uh, short story mm-hmm. um, that may or may not have actually been some guy's paranoid rant we're not 100% sure how how serious he was whether it was meant to science fiction or if this guy was genuinely crazy uh, but they they were this subterranean gnome like you know crazy dwarf group uh, who had this city far beneath the earth's crust and they could perform mind control and it was a whole there's a whole thing anyway the darrow are derived from a from a different source they they come from a different place okay um so then we got to shift we we got we now we got to now carry the the archetype forward from tsr to games workshop okay ah now we're back to warhammer yeah, well, yeah, we're we're getting there. We're getting, gradually getting closer. So, yeah. Citadel Miniatures, which was the company that Games Workshop sprang off of, mm-hmm. initially they were just a miniatures company, and they made minis of all kinds, and they put out dwarf miniatures for players to use in their tabletop games. Mm-hmm. Well, then they came up with the idea of, you know what? What if we just came up like, you know, if you don't want to go through all the trouble of like rolling up a character, you just want to put models on the table and just have a war game. 
and I just want to throw like all of the orcs that I've got because I run my weekly game. I just want to run them on the table and put like, you know, three heroic guys on the table and just, right. just have them have a battle. Like that's all I want to do. And so they came out with Warhammer Fantasy Battle where you could do just that. And then that got more structured and more codified and they actually came up with their own setting for it. And they came up with their own background for all the different races and they built now and then, then they started making miniatures specifically for the game. Mm-hmm. Okay. And when, when that happened, when the game developed to that point, the dwarfs mm-hmm. games workshop got around being sued by Tolkien by pluralizing it correctly. <laughs> um, in the old world of Warhammer, uh, they were D&D dwarves without the default good alignment because the mm-hmm. old world was a lot more morally gray. Right. They took the clan idea and they ramped that up to 11. Clans in Warhammer held on to grudges as a literal religious obligation. <laughs> And you could actually have as a relic that your army could carry onto the battlefield, you could have a unit carry the, the clan's book of grudges, which was, which was a sacred record of the debts of honor owed to those who have wronged the dwarfish people. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And so all, all of their trappings at this point, all the trappings are Norse Germanic. Uh, mm-hmm. plated beards, braids in all the beards, taken all the way right, up to 11. Right. Huge cartoonish big horns on their helmets. Uh, they're heavy drinkers. They're loud. They're cantankerous. They're, they're, you don't ever, uh, you don't ever meet a dwarf. You might meet a dwarf who's kind of taciturn, mm-hmm. but the moment you poke him the right way, he starts roaring. Like right, they're, they're, right. they're that kind of, um, I don't want to say bilious. Well, yeah, bilious kind of temperament. They're they're mm-hmm. that kind of you know kind of kind of characters. Sure. Um, at the same time, they were deeply, deeply traditional. Ancestor worship was a central part of their religion. Okay, it's part of the reason why they hold on to grudges so long. Is this is something that was done to our ancestors? We got to honor our ancestors by never forgetting it. Right. Ever. Um, and so they were also cursed with a greedy streak. Okay. Skilled builders and artificers. They were insular to the point of near xenophobia mm-hmm. and very, very wealthy. So the anti-Semitic tropes are still there. Yes. But they're not, they're not at the forefront of the characterization. Right. If that makes sense. They're they're Yeah, they're secondary traits. They're still there, but they're they're kind of they're they're closer to background noise. Yeah. All right. And so now while we're talking about those tropes, and I promised this would come up. <clears throat> while we're talking about those tropes, uh, J.K. Rowling's goblins mm-hmm. are, are dwarves by a different and uglier name. Right. They're miners. They live underground. They have lots of all the gold, not just lots of gold, all the gold. Right. They're kind of antagonists. They're kind of helpers like when they want to be. Sure. Um, they're shifty <laughs> you can't right. really trust them like like they are they are at once you can you can totally trust them if the wording of the agreement is right but if you're not careful they're going to outmaneuver you and so right. they're slippery right. and you got to be you got to worry about it um and the anti and the and the 
rest of the anti-Semitic tropes attached to him are frankly just gross. Uh, hook noses, squat bodies, yep. literally monstrous physically, but clever. And like I said, legalistic. They right. control all the money. And they're kept... They're the bankers. Yeah, and they're yeah. kept down as second-class subjects in human wizarding society. Yeah, it's... it's um. I mean, she might as well have just been looking at the propaganda vid- uh, like posters yeah of the 1930s pretty much like it really didn't take any imagination to describe the goblins in this way yeah and as if that wasn't bad enough and of course it is um Mm -hmm. the recent dumpster fire of a video game hogwarts legacy Mm -hmm. uh, involves putting the player in the driver's seat to put down or prevent a goblin revolt in the 1800s and it has whistles in it that don't even qualify as dog because they're revoltingly obvious. So they're just giant foghorns. They're just just giant goddamn foghorns, to, to use your phrasing. Yeah. So, um, Joanne, if I may call you Joanne, sincerely and with all the passion I can muster, fuck you. Yeah, no kidding. Tolkien engaged in fetishization and stereotyping, but at least he did it out of a place of admiration. <laughs> and then, and then. When he realized he'd fucked up, he kind of he tried to make his work his work less troublesome. You right. just slapped a bunch of shitty tropes together, and when you've been called out, you've tried to use your position as a white woman to claim victimhood. Also, you're a turf. Yeah. Fuck you. Anyway, back to Games Workshop, and to the grim darkness of mm-hmm. the far future. So, um, Warhammer 40k is warhammer fantasy battle in space like that's it's mm-hmm. literally that's what it says on the tin that's what it is yeah. at, at the found at the beginnings of the game that's literally how it started now the two have diverged from one another over the almost 40 years now since since they they born mm-hmm. but at the beginning that's it's literally what it was it was like oh hey what if we did this but then we made it like science fictiony right and and then they were off to the races and while we're at it let's turn it into an over-the-top parody of everything we see going on in our own politics right now because you know the other thing that's a constant in in british literature is a sardonic sarcastic sense of humor Mm -hmm. so you know we're gonna run with that and so they had space elves who are the eldar Mm -hmm. and that's one of my favorite armies pointy-headed space elves um and you know and then they introduced orcs with a k we talked about that in the right. last episode right um they have undead in the form this is one of the most creative ones they came up with was the necrons mm. who are uh uh souls because there's mm-hmm. a there's still a magical element in the game there are souls that have been forced into robotic bodies and mm. when you blow up the robot, the soul goes back to a central computer, gets downloaded into another machine, and then marches back out. And they look skeletal, and it's essentially a skeleton army led by lich lords. Oh, wow. But it's science Technological. fiction. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, so they took, they took all these ideas out of the fantasy game, and they turned them into science fiction. And dwarfs got turned into the squats. Okay. And so the backstory for the squats at, at the beginning of the game was that uh, there was a human Terran mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. diaspora back in the ancient, ancient history of the game. Sure. 
um, during the dark age of technology, um, humanity left earth and spread out using the earliest warp drives spread all over the galaxy, lost contact with earth. And then were cut off from earth mm-hmm. for millennia. Okay. And, and one particular group of these colonists headed toward the galactic core. And near the galactic core, they wound up on these very dense, very high gravity worlds mm-hmm. with incredibly high radiation levels from everything that's going on in the space around them. So and I so, can guess who would thrive there. So, so over generations, mm-hmm. these human colonists uh, got uh, heavier bone structure, mm-hmm. got shorter, um, started, got hardier. Got hardier um, and they they developed uh, mining technology and the ability to build cities underground, mm-hmm. which protects cetera. you from the radiation somewhat. Yeah. yeah, and so and so they they mutated over time, and in the language of the Imperium, they became abhuman. They're they're human, but they're 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 different. They've 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 diverted genetically from mainline mm-hmm. human, and so they became the squats they're referred to by everybody else in the imperium as the squats because that's what they look like okay and it is a kind of a point of legend uh within the uh uh, design studio and and the culture of of 40k that uh, the design when the designers were coming up with the concepts behind the squats they were sitting in a pub and doing a lot of drinking and so in a game that was full of over the top humor right the squats were more over the top than many of the other races uh they were a little bit funnier a little bit goofier in a lot of ways they carried over the idea of the ancestor worship for warhammer fantasy battle they carried over the idea of holding on to grudges for literally forever Mm -hmm. Uh, but they then introduced because uh, squats have shorter legs, and so they have they have a lower movement stat than mm-hmm. regular humans. So a regular human would move four inches a turn, if I'm remembering right. A squat has a movement rate of three. Sure. So in order to make up for that on the battlefield, um, they used a lot of bikes and a lot of trikes. <laughs> and so one of the images that's associated with early squats is a dwarf on a chopper with gigantic rear wheels and a, and a, you know, big, long ape hanger handlebars, uh, literally a leather biker vest and a Viking helmet. Nice. And, and, and that's, and, and then a, you know, a bolt pistol in one hand and, you know, big, big sunglasses and, and, you know, and it was just so over the top and everybody, everybody got a kick out of the squats, but not a lot of people played them. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, they wound up getting an awful lot more lore. There was a lot more developed for them as a culture and for for their background as a faction within the epic game, which instead of like Warhammer 40K is normally played, you might have, you have a really big horde army. If you're playing orcs, you might have 50 models on the table. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're talking about like a company sized kind of kind of engagement. Right. With Epic, you are throwing an entire army, battalion-sized units against each other. 
And so the scale of the models is much smaller. Right. And each each model represents a squad rather than an individual soldier or it might represent even a full platoon. Sure. And so within Epic, uh, the squads got all kinds of toys. They got big war machines that were they they had mining trains that would travel armored mining trains that would travel across the surface of their planets carrying ore to starports mm -hmm. and so when they went to war they would armor up these trains even more and mount huge guns on them and and so they they had all of this kind of technological stuff and part of the backstory was expanded to say that because of the circumstances of their settlement and, and their needs in their new homes, the squats had managed to hold on to more of the technological base mm -hmm. of ancient earth. The rest of humanity had fallen into this terrible dark age and had then turned away from certain aspects of, of technology technology like they, mm -hmm. they stole the idea of the butlerian jihad for doom you, you, you have no ais anywhere in human technology in warhammer 40k because that's heretical it's, right it's an affront to the machine god you don't do that whereas you know in in the early days of the game it was kind of flirted with that well you know they they do things that the tech magi consider heretical mm-hmm but they're allied to the Imperium. They're still basically human. And so, you know, they're, they're on friendly terms, but sometimes there might be skirmishes. Sure. And so um, they, they had this, this role kind of within, within the lore. And then at the end of second edition, um, third edition came out. And all of a sudden, there was no army book coming out. There was no codex coming out for squats. Mm. Eldar got a new book. Space Marines obviously got a new book because everybody plays fucking Space Marines. Mm -hmm. Orcs got a new book. The Dark Eldar got a new book. The Eldar got a new... You know, everybody gets a new book and they're like, um, what about squats? And, you know, you've given everybody else a, a book but like where where did our where did our dwarves go dwarves in space man come on we we want our bikers now, and... i saw something like this in the game x-wing it's called x-wing okay. yeah and they came out with uh first you had x-wings and tie fighters then you had um y-wings and you had tie interceptors and you had bombers and you had a-wings cool cool they had tie defenders and tie phantoms all right, you're getting there. Yeah, okay. Then you had B wings. All right, cool. You had E wings, K wings. Then you had the Millennium Falcon. Then you had uh, the Dash Render ship. Yeah. Then you had, uh, you know, the, the Fire Sprite. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. And then you got the IG 2000. Then you got the Jumpmaster Jet uh, 5000, you know, Dengar okay. ship. Then you got the Hound's yeah. Tooth. And then, then you got like, the tan of four and you got a transport all right nice then you got z95 headhunters and then you got scum and villainy faction and then you got like a, a tie carrier and then you got these decimators and you just start getting all this shit and it's like okay cool this is all really fun and you're getting all my money <laughs> but the problem is is that like the game is called x-wing the most iconic ship in the series is the X-Wing. It should not be obsolete because you added new ships. 
so yeah my question is this everybody else got all these new rule books was there anything that needed improvement with the dwarves or could they still hang and bang with everyone even with their improved rule books well no and the problem there is less about power creep which is what you're what you're getting at there in x-wing yep yep it's less about power creep and it's more about the fact that the uh, the the flow and structure and and architecture of the game changed very dramatically between second gotcha. edition and third okay uh, second edition was okay we're going to take the first edition and we're going to throw all the whipped cream and all the frosting and all the sprinkles on top of it and mm-hmm. it's just like all the awesome in the world and it was amazing and then <clears throat> somebody in the marketing department went, okay, you know what? This is, this is great. This is awesome. So we're, we're, we're very happy. We're, we're doing okay with that. But you know, mm-hmm. you know what would make us a lot more money long-term would be getting a younger demographic starting the game. So instead right. of targeting 18 and 20-year-olds, we need to make this a game that we can get 11 and 12 year olds to, to bug their parents to get them stuff for and get them started then. And then we're going to be able to hold on to them for that many more years. Mm -hmm. Right. So we, we need to, we need to kind of kind of age down the game a little bit. At least that's my conspiracy theory. Sure. And it's one that's shared by a lot of fans. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. And, and so the jump from second edition to third edition was a radical, radical simplification of the rules. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the stuff that had made different factions what they were mm-hmm. had to be jiggered around to work within the new rules environment. Okay. Like they did away with movement sta- movement as a statistic entirely. Well, that's everybody, everybody. If you're an infantryman, you move six inches. If you're on a bike, you move 12. If you're in a tank, you can move up to 12. Like they, they just radically, that's, that's one example of the way in which they, they simplified stuff very, very dramatically. And so everybody needed a new rule book because it's like, okay, how do I play my pointy headed space elves? Right. Like what, what, what are, what, how, what, how do their toys work now? Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and and the same thing with squats, and and an army book never came out for them. Hmm. So there was so there was no way, unless you just said, okay, you know what, I'm just going to play them as imperial guard. Sure, sure, but they're now they, I, they, I'm reskinning. I'm not. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm reskinning instead of actually having my own faction. Mm-hmm. And so this this became an issue. And in the early '90s, I want to say it was '93. Okay. I think it was 93 might've been later. Uh, somebody wrote to white dwarf magazine, which is the, the mouthpiece of the games workshop design studio, basically. Mm-hmm. And they said, where, where are the squats? What happened? And some anonymous editor, we don't know which member of the editorial staff it was who said it mm-hmm. gave the answer in the, in the letters column. Uh, said to this individual, you know, uh, maybe they, uh, you know, decided to pack all their stuff up and leave the galaxy. Maybe they got eaten by the Tyranids and they're, they're, they've been destroyed completely. 
Sadly, mm-hmm. I just need to tell you that you're not going to see the squats again. They're they're gone. We're not we're not okay. doing anything with them. We're not going to revive the line. Okay. Basically, you know, they they we only have so much production capacity. We were not, you know, we weren't making enough money off of them and and so they've been left behind. Okay. Well, what's interesting is that response one part of that response mm-hmm. got seized on by the 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 community the 40k fandom mm-hmm. and first the the fandom said oh my god games workshop just murdered the squats they've all been eaten by the tyranids mm-hmm. well you know if you actually read the guy's letter that's not really what he said right he said maybe this maybe that maybe maybe, maybe this, this maybe, maybe that, that you know yeah. Um, but that one thing, it was like, oh my God, you just sacrificed, you just retconned them in a sacrifice to the Tyranid hive mind, you know, mm-hmm. and that got, that got picked up and, and then in, uh, uh, black library novels and other like published material, mm-hmm. writers who were being commissioned by games workshop took that idea and then made it canonical and so it became it became part of the background lore that somewhere along the way uh the squats had been devoured by the tyranid hive fleets okay and and that got referenced as you know background text and stuff in other people's codices Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for the next five six editions of the game and and like I mentioned previously, there was a running joke within the fandom that anytime you mention squats, we reset the clock and it's going right. to be that much longer before GW actually comes back around and says, now, you know what? Let's bring back the squats. Right. And so from 1994 or whenever it was that third edition came out, um, it was actually later than that, but I don't have the dates in front of me. From from the release of third edition up until like last month, mm-hmm. um, it was basically just just understood that we're never going to see our space dwarves again. Like GW and and there were legends of uh, in in high level like staff meetings uh, like mm-hmm. store managers, and I, I can't corroborate this, and and I've I've had people tell me that that this is fabrication, but I, I worked in retail for games workshop for about a year and a half a long long time ago and it was an urban legend to us red shirts that a store manager from somewhere in the uk had been at a games day in nottingham (laughs) talking to the the planning guys the all the all the big wigs design studio right and one of the high-ranking guys in the company had started his presentation by saying, and before I start, if anybody asks me any questions about squats, you're fired. Right. And everybody laughs. Ha 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 ha. And then he gets part way. He gets, he gets through what he has to say. And he says, are there any questions? And the very first Some guy raises ass. his hand, smart ass says, well, okay, but what about squats? And the and urban legend fired. went and, and the urban legend went, he looked him right in the eye and said, you're fired. Pack your shit. Get out like oh right haha just serious like no he really has a mad on about this right 
because there was also the legend that there was kind of a feud within the design studio between uh, the the couple or three guys who were who were behind the original design of the squats and then being goofy the way they were and over the top and and kind of comedic mm-hmm. and the other faction within the studio kind of headed by this one guy who were very hardcore about no man this is the grim dark for our future this is serious business capital s capital b you know mm-hmm. and and like he was the one who dropped the axe ultimately on the squats and like anybody bringing it up just pissed him off because that shit doesn't belong in my game you know right kind of thing and how much of that is just, you know, people having had a bad experience with this one guy and wanting to blame him for shit and how much of it might be have a kernel of truth. I, I'm not qualified to answer again, sure, cause sure. like I wasn't there, but, but those were the kinds of stories that were, that were circulated for, you know, 25 years within, within the fandom. And so then last month, like I said, April mm-hmm. 1st, we see this video that you know makes a joke about uh you know part of part of the effect of the video is you see you know a smaller ship docking with a derelict imperial battleship that's you know clearly been ruined in in, in some space battle and then Mm -hmm. you're looking at the airlock opening and you know tense dramatic music is playing and then the airlock doors open and there's nobody there and you hear down here and the camera shifts down and there's this kind of silhouette of a figure in some kind of kind of power armor that's this mm-hmm. you know short squat figure and then and then that fades away and this dwarvish looking kind of face glyph shows up on the screen mm-hmm. and then it cuts to black and everybody's like no yeah like, right like yeah. oh yeah okay and 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 again like i said it was april 1st april april fools ha ha okay they they got they got me good followed by the following day them saying um well, what's this about april huh april what now mm-hmm. and then actually showing us a model and everybody freaking out and so they've now they've reintroduced squats and the mm-hmm. and the models are going to be out you're going to be able to actually put them on the tabletop in another couple of months. Um, and they have rebranded them oh, in some interesting okay. ways. They're not calling them squats anymore, for one thing. They are the leagues of Votan. Okay. And they've been giving us kind of dribs and drabs of their of their of their new background. They've kind of retconned some things. Mm-hmm. And now uh the leagues of votan again it's leagues plural an individual league is an extended kind of kin group right uh an individual soldier of the votan leagues is called a kin as in kinsman sure kinswoman sure uh they have actually the, the models that we have already seen in previews have included male and female figures which is a new development amongst all of the races in, in 40 K. You you didn't see like Eldar were one of the few races where you saw female models as part of the army, like as a regular thing, them and dark Eldar. Uh, Most everything else was just a gigantic sausage party. Right. Although orcs are technically genderless, but they code as male. Um, But anyway, so they're, so they're male and female. And uh, we still see beards on all of the male figures. 
Um, and they are a highly technologically advanced race. Uh, they have, uh, they have much more advanced technology than the Imperium does. They've held on to, just like the earlier squats, they have held on to more of the technological legacy of old earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, um, they're still descended from settlers who moved out into the core of the galaxy. Um, but an article I actually just read today that was put out by Games Workshop as a preview. Uh, now they're a clone race. They are, they are, they are each individual kin is built on what they call the gene scheme. So like on a loom. Okay. Which is interesting because um, a similar idea is in uh, Doctor Who Hmm. because the Time Lords don't have biological parents. Right. In the sense that we do, they are themselves created on a genetic loom Mm -hmm. is the term they use. And so now we have the Votan who have their gene genetic skein um, and individual kin can have different bioengineered traits. Like they might be able to see in the infrared spectrum. They might have an extra thick hide, different kinds of things. So they're technologically advanced. And there is this um, element of uh, forced kind of evolution or mm-hmm. conscious evolution involved. Yeah. And accelerated too. Accelerated. And yeah. so, you know, I, I, I kind of, it, it's interesting to me that this is now the direction that, that the archetype has now taken in this way. Well, I think this comes that back to your original question. That they're leaning, they're leaning back into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. yeah, it yeah. does. And the thing is, I'm, I'm not sure because I, I think part of it is that I'm living in this moment. And so whatever it is that's going on is, you know, the water I'm swimming in. Right. It's much harder to see what thread to pull on to. Yeah. Yeah. To prove this, you know, and, and also because they've only just announced this and we just have dribs and drabs of information about what, what they're going to look like. And right, so, right. you know, there's conjecture involved, but I think the fact that they're bringing them back at all is an interesting statement about the nostalgia kick we're kind of all on as a culture yes and i Um, dare say that the the hyper focus on um kin and genetics and things like that uh absolutely mirrors our own i mean think about how many friends you know who now know what percentage nigerian they are yeah or you know the, the the amount of relatives you know who are like oh i didn't even know we had this in us you know and that kind yeah. of thing so people are very obsessed with blood quantum right now yeah which is never a good sign but no yeah but i think it's Agreed. it's quite possibly filling that lacking role otherwise yeah so so yeah okay i mean that's that's kind of that's kind of the history uh up to this moment and wow. you know sadly a lot of it is stained by um, these these ugly, unfortunate, you know, anti-Semitic kind of kind of tropes that got sucked into all of it. Right. And you know, 
the intensity of how much there is anti-Semitism involved in this interpretation, I think is something we can't know yet this early in the game, you know, yeah, but, you, but you can maybe sniff around the edges. I mean, yeah. I, I come back to the flag of Kekistan. Yeah. I mean, you've got a lot of people blowing a lot of whistles. Yeah. So, and, and again, a third old intent doesn't necessarily mean anything. Right. This so true. they, they very well could look at it and go like, man, we were hella anti-Semitic in the time. So we need to not do that. Let's make sure we don't do that. Here we go. Here's this. Here's that. Here's this. Uh, let's let's remove these references. Let's not do this. Let's de-emphasize that. And at the end of the day, some dipshit is gonna still be like, "Yeah, man, I'm gonna play a Jew squad." Yep. So, like again, authorial intent. Yeah. Intent. You know, yeah. it it does not mean as much as we'd like it to. Yeah. Um. But you know, also can just kick that person away from your table. So this is true yeah so so anyway that's nice. that's kind of where this this comes to an end i like it i like um, it a lot um you know i'm i'm very excited uh to see what what the new models are going to look like because the technology to to create the models has gotten so much more oh, precise yeah. and oh, they yeah. look they just look so much better sure sure uh you know if you compare a model from back when squats were still a thing to anything being put out right now the difference mm-hmm. is, is phenomenal so I'm, oh yeah I'm night and day stoked yeah cool so what is your takeaway um i think in some ways that this might be again uh i i think cash is king first of all but secondly i think that someone's conscience could be such that they're like yeah we need to slight distance ourselves from from the anti-semitism part knowing that there's going to be a a segment of them who don't yeah Yeah. but i think that desire to do so is also cash-based yeah well anytime you're talking about a company making a decision right so it's worth it more to them to not be accused down the road of using anti-semitic tropes still in this day and age etc etc um, I think it's more worth it to them on their brand to be like, you know, when somebody goes and challenges them, they're like, yeah, no, we we had a, a remarkably um, disappointing history. And but as you can see by our new line, which is on sale for 20 percent off today, uh, you'll note that, uh, you know, we don't do that anymore. We're actually making recompense. So, yeah, yeah. So that's I guess that's my takeaway. It's like at the yeah. end of the day, it's still a game that wants to entertain people. And the reason it wants to entertain people is to make money off of them. Um, and they've done the calculus. This is why I like it when uh, businesses uh, come out as woke, quote yeah. unquote, because I'm like, good. That means that we're doing something as a culture because for them yeah. to pay attention to their bottom line, which is their job, yeah, and see that bigotry is not what they want, then yeah. there you go. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. But yeah, it's that's... it's part of the nuance involved in like you know corporate wokeness, right? You know, which, performative with, performative with, yeah, wokeness. Yeah, with Pride Month coming up is mm-hmm. you know something that always comes up as part of discussions of any of that. Oh yeah, yeah. You know? Like you know, you're making a buck off of us. <clears throat> what are you yeah. doing for us? Yeah, yeah. So what you reading? Um, I am rereading Sherlock Holmes. Mm, nice um because 
uh, trying to get a classroom full of 21st century sixth graders to understand the language right. of uh, Arthur Conan Doyle um, has, has driven me to the point of like, you know what, I just need to sit down and read this for my own enjoyment. Right. Because, because if I don't, this is just going to be such a deadly slog. I'm never going to get through it. <laughs> sure. Uh, sure. So yeah, I, I will always recommend anybody who either hasn't read them or has read them, but hasn't done it in a while mm-hmm. uh, to go back and, and reread the home stories because they are, they are, they are perennial. They are, they're nice. always entertaining. Um, and so that's, that's my recommendation. Cool. How about you? I'm going to recommend the greatest, the great influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history um, by oh, John. Sounds delightful. Oh, it is. I've been reading the most depressing stuff lately, but it's by John Barry. So go get that. It's fairly inexpensive in most places now because it came out a few years back. Uh, but I strongly recommend you give that a read and then you, you know, make a worksheet for yourself and just do All a right. T-chart and say 1918, 2020. You know, and just see see what you come up with. So where can people find you on the TikTok, the Instagram, all the socials? Uh they want your home address, your phone Uh, number, your work. Okay. No, no. Well, at your leisure, whatever you want to do. No. Um, so you can find me on TikTok as Mr. Underscore Blaylock. You can find me on Twitter as EH Blaylock. And uh we can be found collectively on Twitter as geek history time. We can be found on the internet at geekhistoryoftime.com. And um, you can also, you have already found us no doubt on Mm -hmm. either the Apple podcast app or on Stitcher, Mm -hmm. whichever of those places you found us on, uh, please go make sure you have subscribed, make sure you give us a review, give us the five stars. You know that we've earned and where can you be found good sir uh you can find me at duh harmony on twitter and insta you can also uh find me the first friday of most months by the time this airs i think we'll have just finished the june 24th show so come see me doing capital punishment on august 5th that'll be the first show of our new year uh, which means we've been at this for six years that'll be the first show of our seventh year holy cow yeah, it's pretty cool. So yeah, come see Capital cool. Punishment down at Luna's. You got to bring uh, proof of vaccination, a good sense of humor, and ten dollars, and then some money for nachos or wine or something. So, All right. uh, make a night of it. Uh, bring your your vaxed up, maxed up uh, boo, and come on down and laugh at our puns. So, yeah, sounds good. Cool. Well, for a geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony, and I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, Kazad, Kazad. Kazad Aymenu. <laughs>